I almost don't want to get up here. I love listening to those guys sing praising God like that. And um, I'm excited about the word, but it's something cool what God does through music. And uh, I love listening to that. Guys, have you ever been out on a cool, crisp fall morning? Maybe you're sitting in a deer stand waiting for that first buck or doe to kind of come trotting by and uh, you see the sun rising and you can kind of feel your breath out there and you, you think to yourself for that moment, this is as good as it gets. This is perfect. It's paradise. Maybe for those of you who aren't hunters, you've been out on Lake Minnetonka or, or out on a lake uh, up in northern Minnesota in the late uh, summer. You've seen as the sun starts to go down and it throws its colors all over the sky. And it throws its colors all over the water. It's just bathing everything in light. And you th- you're overwhelmed with this sense of calm and peace and satisfaction. And the thought sort of occurs to you that just maybe you've died and gone to heaven. Ladies, have you ever had a dessert? One of those really rich, gooey, creamy kinds? <laughs> The, the kind that you think after you've eaten, maybe you just put five pounds in all the wrong places, right? But as you're eating it, you're thinking what? This is heavenly. This is heavenly. And I think what that goes to is it goes to our desire to want to be in heaven. It goes to our desire to want to know what heaven is like. And our culture, much has been made of heaven. We, of course, can think of the little cupids floating on on the clouds, strumming their harps. Um, you think of the precious moments, uh, DVD my kids watch with uh, Tommy, the littlest angel, uh, sitting up there waiting for his turn and his, get his wings. But this morning what I really want to do is I want to paint an accurate picture of heaven for us. I want to paint a biblical picture of heaven for us. I want to paint a picture of heaven that is the way that God describes his heaven. And then what I want to do is out of that picture of heaven, I want to motivate us to think globally about missions. I'm honored that they would give me this time uh, this morning to preach and to bring God's word. And I'm a little nervous this morning. Um, preaching out of Revelations, there's a lot of good stuff in that book, but it's a place that some preachers never fear to try. <laughs> due to the prophecy and things. And, but I'm excited too because you know what? God has a lot to say in this book. And so if you would, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. It was our scripture reading this morning. And allow me to just pray for us this morning to ask God to come and be with me and, and to be with us during this time. Господу Отец наш Небесный, мы благодарим Тебя за Иисуса Христа, за Его смерть на кресте, за Его воскресение. Мы благодарим Тебя за то, что Ты любишь нас, Ты знаешь нас, Ты искупил нас. Господь, мы не можем ничего сделать без Тебя. Ты наш спасибо, нас Господь, наш Бог. Ты создал нас, и мы знаем, Что 
Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your love for us, and I would just pray that you would come now and cover me in your spirit, Lord, that you would uh, honor that, the meditation and the time that I've spent thinking through this passage, Lord, this morning, and that you would let my words be your words, that I would decrease and you would increase, that we would truly get a heart and a passion and a sense for not only your heaven, but your world and the reaching of it with your gospel. Be with us this morning and come now and fill me. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 7, chapter 9, or chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John's been transported into the heavenlies, and he's looking out over heaven, and he's taking notes. These are his, his visions that he's seeing, and he says here four things. The first thing he says is that he looked before him and there was a great multitude that no one could count. I think John may have been thinking back to the Old Testament. Because what are some of the promises that God made to the patriarchs? That their descendants would be too numerous to count. That they'd be as great as the sands on the sea. That they'd be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, Right? tells Abraham that he'll be a father of many nations. And we see that's the next part. This multitude comes out from every tribe, nation, people, and language. And they're standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they're wearing white robes and holding palm branches. You see, God's in the business of keeping his promise. God's in the business of completing his work. And so when you look at the Old Testament, you see those promises, we get to see the fulfillment of them here in the New Testament, in Revelation. And what's interesting is, nobody's left out. Do you notice that? He didn't just say every nation. I mean, today we have about 196 nations in the world, depending on what website you check and who you, you talk with, but about 196 nations. Well, nations that existed... Uh, thousand years ago don't exist anymore. Nations that will exist maybe in 200 or 300 years don't exist now. 
So he didn't just stop with the nations. He goes on and says, from every tribe, every people, every language, everybody's included. Everybody's going to be present at the throne, and everybody's going to be there. And John notes a third thing. John notes that they're going to be worshiping God. If you look, verse 10, And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One of the coolest experiences, and I hope you guys got a little bit of it this morning, one of the coolest experiences I've ever been a, been a part of is to sit in a sanctuary where there's a lot of different language groups represented. Close your eyes for just a minute. I want to see if I can tear the roof off this place and take us somewhere in our minds that maybe some of us haven't been. You're in this room and you're sitting there quietly and you've heard a time of worship and a time of reflection and you've heard uh, some devotional thoughts. And all of a sudden, out of the back of the room, you hear somebody start to pray. And you hear a language you don't understand, but it's Mandarin. And somebody is praying in Mandarin, and they're praising God in Mandarin, and they're asking God to break their heart for the Chinese people. And then you, as that one dies away and fades, you hear Portuguese from Brazil, and you hear the Spanish from South America and Spain, and they start to rise up in a swell, and they start to praise God and pray that God would bring revival to their land. And that God would use them in particular to advance the gospel and to advance his kingdom. And then you hear voices from all over Europe. You hear Macedonian, you hear Bulgarian, you hear Polish. You start to move across and all of a sudden we hear Ukrainian and Russian. And you start to hear these languages. And even though you don't understand the language, you know full well what the words are. Because they're worshiping God together. That's what this scene is in heaven. That's what's going to be going on at the end of the age. There's going to be a cosmic, universal, multi-ethnic worship service going on. I've had that privilege of sitting in a room with a lot of folks who speak different languages and listening to that wash over you. You can only imagine the languages Roger and Monica have been able to sit in on and experience in their time. Sandy's been all over the world, a lot of different places. I'd love for one minute to be able to sort of tap into her memory banks and hear some of the things that she's seen and done. But more importantly, I'd love to hear what the worship services sounded like in Japan and in Thailand and in India and in Spain. Another thing I want to try to help us get a handle on is that this isn't just any old worship service. Now, I know we're in Minnesota, and we're in a place where people are pretty stuck, and I'm already getting emotional. I haven't even started getting to the meat of the sermon yet, so you guys are in trouble. Um, but this isn't a stoic, quiet, settled holy, holy, holy type of worship service, right? 
Verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is truth. They're proclaiming truth to God. They're telling him exactly what he already knows, that salvation belongs to him and to no other. And they're excited about it. They're crying out. They're pouring out their hearts before the throne. I want to be there. If that service that I was a part of was a little slice of heaven, man, I can't wait for the main course. I can't wait to see what God is going to do with people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That cosmic worship service is something that ought to motivate us. It ought to get us excited. This is where if I was preaching maybe in an inner city church or somewhere down south, I'd probably get an amen out of somebody in the pew. Uh, But I know I'm in Minnesota, so it's okay. They're worshiping God. And again, it's not the, it's not the, it's not the uh, sort of sappy waiting for my wings, you know, not to pick on the harp because the harp music was beautiful, but, you know, playing my harp kind of music. It's not sitting around all day doing that. It's a passionate cry from the heart, from the soul that's been transformed from one who knows the saving power of Christ and his death and resurrection. And so they're crying out in this loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. And John notes a fourth thing. We're not the only ones, right? Look at your text. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. So we're up there praising God. We're up there raising our voices. We're up there pouring out our hearts. And the the four living creatures, the elders, the angels are there. And they're worshiping God too. They've fallen down on their faces before Almighty God. And they start out by saying, Amen. I thought that was pretty interesting because you know what? They could have just dove right into their own praise, right? I mean, the angels have been with God for a very, 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 very long time. I mean, they are created beings. They had a beginning. But they're always up there. They could have just dove right in and been like, here, let me show you how this is done, you people. They don't do that. They say, amen, they agree with us. Let it be so. And then they start with their own praise. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Nobody's exempt from praising God. Nobody gets a pass. Right? All creation declares his majesty. All all creation will cry out to him. So there's this cosmic worship service going on up in heaven. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are there. The angels are there. The elders are there. The four living creatures are there agreeing with us. And they're worshiping God. Okay, I can't take it anymore. Can you guys stand it? Seriously. You guys are... (laughs) They're praising God. Right? They are worshiping God for what he's done. For a changed life. For a heart transformed. For a sinner redeemed. That's why missionaries do what they do. And that is the motivation for our mission. 
But before we get there, I want us to take a look at the admission slip, at the ticket that gets us into this worship service. I hope I'm starting to build some excitement with you guys about wanting to be there. I hope I'm starting to get you excited about thinking about what that'll sound like someday. Verse 13. John's been just taking notes. Now one of the elders is going to engage him and says, uh, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now verses 13 and 14 are going to talk to us about what the admission slip is, right? What's the ticket to get into this cosmic worship service? It's the gospel. The gospel is the center of God's redemptive work. The cross is the center of that redemptive work, and it's the thing that gets us reconciled to God. It is the thing that gets us into this cosmic worship service that's going to happen, right? And so John and this elder are having a conversation and verse 14, I don't want to get us bogged down here on this, but it does talk about the tribulation, and I want to, uh, I want to do honor to the text because it is there. Verse 14 starts out by stating that these are those who have come out of the great tribulation and that they have washed their, ro- their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. The phrase great tribulation can be interpreted in lots of different ways, in different places in the Bible. For instance, Pastor Dave mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before. Jesus uses the same Greek word, um, philipsis. I hope I said that right, philipsis. Um, when he says, in this world, you will have trials. You'll have tribulations. You're going to have trouble. But I give you my peace. That's a general kind of concept that life is just going to be hard. Because of sin, because of the fall, because of the way it affects us as humans and nature around us, life's going to be difficult. But in this particular passage, John isn't talking about just life being tough. He's talking about the great tribulation. He's talking about a seven-year period uh, of, of great intense persecution and trials and troubles. And when we think about this, we think about it in one of three categories usually. Okay? We think about pre-tribulation. And especially when we talk about the rapture. Pre-tribulation basically states that uh, the rapture will occur prior to that seven-year tribulation period. And Christians are going to be spared from going through this. It's a very popular one probably because of that. It means we don't have to go through all the heartache and the headache and the suffering. <laughs> Mid, the mid-tribulation group, as you might have guessed, would say, well, we're going to have to go halfway through. We get three and a half years of of this process of being purged and, and tried and tested and going through these uh, oppressive times, and then God will rapture us out. The post-tribulation folks, well, they would say, nope, sorry guys, you get the whole seven years. You get to, you get to go through the whole thing before Christ is going to come and rapture his church. Now, I want to be really clear here. The E-free allows us to hold any of those three positions, and we want to be really gracious, because whether you're a pre-trib or a mid-trib or a post-trib, we all agree that the gospel is the center. We want to be crystal clear about that. Let's keep the main things the main things. Let's keep what's important important. And John does that too, and 
Verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9, uh, towards the end, he talks about they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches. And then you jump down to 14b. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You guys, the gospel is the centerpiece. There is no hope for the nations without the gospel. There is no hope for a person going through a hard trial or a hard tribulation without the gospel. So, I want to make sure we're clear about that. You see, the Bible says that we're all sinners. We've all done something wrong. I was at a youth group a few weeks ago, and if you saw this on Facebook, I'm sorry, I'll apologize now. Um, I was doing a youth group, and I said, how many of you guys have ever told a lie? And everybody in the, hand, in the group raised their hand, and without thinking, I said, great, you're all honest liars. <laughs> yeah, they all chuckled, too. They thought that was pretty good. And like I said, Facebook being what it is nowadays, it's, it's up there. I can't do anything about it. If you've ever told a lie, if you've ever taken something that isn't yours, even as a child, if you've ever been so mad at somebody who maybe cut you off or a spouse who's done something that's made you angry and you thought, I'd like to choke that guy or I'd like to choke that person. That's sin. And God says that the penalty for sin is death. It's eternal separation from him. And if that was the end of the story, we might as well all go home because there's not a lot of hope and joy in that. But it isn't, you see, because God knew that that was the case. He knew that that was the state we were in. And he sent his son, Jesus, to come live on this earth. And he lived a perfect life without any sin. And then he died the death of a criminal. And at that moment, God Almighty laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus paid the price for those sins. And three days later, he rose again. See, my God isn't dead. My God isn't sleeping. My God isn't tired. My God isn't on vacation. My God is alive. My God is powerful. My God has praise and honor and wisdom and thanks and glory. And my God holds the keys to salvation and he gives freely to all those who come. The Bible says in Romans, I'm gonna try, excuse me a minute. The Bible says in Romans, if we confess that with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe that he raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's not smoke and mirrors. There's no magic formula. There's just the gospel. There's just Christ. There's just the cross. There's just a death and a resurrection and a God who made a way. If you've never, ever heard that before, if you've never accepted that for yourself as a reality after the service today, come find me. Come find Pastor Dave. Wayne Hewitt will be up here. I guarantee you Wayne would love to pray with you and talk with you about what the gospel means. I guarantee it. The gospel is the center. It's the ticket that gets us into the multi-ethnic, multicultural worship service. But this is Mission Sunday, right? And all we've been talking about is a worship service and how we ought to praise God and how we ought to think about heaven and think about all these things. I think that worship service is the motivation for why we do what we do. It's the motivation for mission. It's the reason that we're on a mission. You see, if we have a global perspective, if we understand that every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group is going to be in heaven, then it should motivate us to tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. 
It ought to motivate us to be more passionate, more compelling, more alive in the way that we present the gospel. One of the things that Sen teaches us, not about preaching, but about talking about missions, is that people want a compelling, passionate, and clear call. I think that's the gospel. A passionate, compelling, clear calling that we're sinners and we need a Christ. Our mission is motivated by this picture of a multicultural heaven. It's motivated out of a multilingual, multi-ethnic worship service. And John is going to give us seven motivations here for why we ought to go to the nations, for why we ought to do mission. And I'm actually going to start with the second one. So um, I don't want to throw you guys off if you're following along in your, in your text and your outline. I'm going to start with the second one. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. That's two and three. I'm going to be honest, I don't know what it is to be starving to death. I've been hungry. I've maybe gone a day without a meal. Maybe. Some of you, my father-in-law shaking his head, no, probably not even a day. (laughs) I get busy too once in a while, Dad. Leave me alone. I don't know what it is to be so thirsty that my tongue is swelling within in my own mouth. And I'm delirious with sweat and fever. I have no idea what that's like. But what would it mean to a person who routinely goes days or weeks or months without any food? Who routinely goes long periods of time without clean water? What would it mean to them to have somebody come to them and explain to them that in this life there are trials and troubles, but in the next life God will provide and you never again will be thirsty and you never again will be hungry. See, God is interested in our suffering. God is interested in the suffering of this age, but he's far more interested in eternal suffering. He's far more interested in the suffering of souls in hell. And that's what happens when people don't accept Christ. There's a heaven and there's a hell. They're real places, they exist, and it's a reality. We need to not shy away from that. What would it mean to somebody who lives out under the sun all the time? Do you guys realize that around the world, if you really look, you'll start seeing all these things about so many people froze to death in in, a you know, Ukraine or in Russia. So many people died of exposure to elements in this country or that country. I get a little crabby when the house gets below 68. It's it's too cold. What would it mean to them to have somebody tell them that there's a God in heaven and a Father who created them and an almighty, loving intimate God who wants to take care of their suffering and that they're never going to have to sit out under the sun and be scorched to death. They're never going to feel the bite of cold because 
there with Jesus. This is where I start to get a little bit excited, so hopefully I'll slow down and speak clearly. The last three points are absolutely amazing. There's a shepherd that is going to lead them beside living waters. Right? There's a shepherd. Think about people who have lived their entire life under persecution, especially because of the gospel. Who have had to hide their Bibles, who have had to see loved ones hauled off, who have had to endure the indignities of this world because of the cause of Christ? What would it mean to them to know that there's going to be a shepherd who's going to lead them beside still waters and living waters and calm pastures and a place of plenty? What would it mean to them? I don't know, but I think it means the world. I think that's why they're willing to die. I think that's why they're willing to continue to suffer for their faith. I think that's the reason why they persevere in the face of extreme persecution. Because there's a lamb. There's a lamb at the center of the throne who will be their shepherd. And there's a God who says, if you have no family, you have no friends, you have no one to care for you, I'll take you in. I'm going to spread my tent over you. Think about what that means for somebody that has no, no home. And I don't just mean maybe a physical location, home, place to live in, the house, but doesn't feel like they belong anywhere. Think about it, what it means to somebody like one of the Russian kids that we work with who has no mom or no dad and has never had anybody to, to love them. To know that God himself is going to spread a tent over them, take them into his family, and then he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not some of them, not a few of them. All the tears are gone. That ought to motivate us to get out there and share the gospel. Because God is intimately interested in our suffering in this world, but he's far more interested in our eternal suffering. And if we don't advance the gospel around the world, if we don't take it to the places where it isn't, then we turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to suffering. Because that is the ultimate reality. They will suffer. I want to challenge us this morning. Guys, we need to be globally minded first. We need to be globally minded first when it comes to our missions when it comes to spreading the gospel. And here's why. God doesn't need us to accomplish this great scene in Revelation. Doesn't need me. Doesn't need Jackie. Doesn't need Roger and Monica. Doesn't need Pastor Dave. Doesn't need Sandy Vanderwall. Doesn't need the Baja team. But 
just very pleased to use them when they're willing. He's very pleased to use you when you're willing. And it's part of his plan. It's a desired and necessary part of God's plan. Because you know what? God could choose to reveal himself in any number of ways. He chose you. He chose you to be the witnesses. He chose you to make the disciples. He chose you to be the ones to carry his name to the world and to the nations and to the peoples and the tribes and the languages. He chose you. And he's pleased to do it. If you're willing. The reason I say we need to be globally minded first is this. If you guys are like me, when I used to work for Progressive, I'd get up in the morning, skip breakfast, hop in the car, swing by the essay or holiday, fill up with my Mountain Dew for the day, get into the office, work a full day, probably skip lunch, running around doing whatever, and then I'd come home. I'd come home, have dinner with Jack and the kids. I'd play with my children, which is all, these are all good things to do. And by 9 o'clock, I didn't have enough time or energy left to even think about picking up a Bible for me, let alone anybody else. You see, that one day turns into a week, and that week turns into a month, and that month turns into a year, and that year turns into a decade, and pretty soon, the phrase, life happened, just happened. But I believe that if we go on a global mission first, if we make that our perspective, if we make that our focus, not only will we have the time, the energy, the resources, and the ener- and the passion to reach a world, we will care deeply about the man who lives next door. We will care deeply about the woman or the shut-in who lives in a facility, whether it's a nursing home or or an, an elderly care facility. We will care deeply about people who are suffering and hurting right here in Mound. But I think that God uses those global perspective moments to open our eyes, not just to what's happening abroad, but what's happening here. See, brothers and sisters, when we have an inward focus, when we have an inward focus, when it comes to the missions, we won't have the energy. We won't have the time. There's a ton, there is a ton of opportunities here at this church to serve. The music team is growing, praise God. But I know I sat here a lot of Sundays and heard Kyle talk about, if you want to join the, the music team, Kyle, right? If you want to join the music team, come on up, right? Come see us on Thursday nights, that's when we practice. And you see all these opportunities to serve here at home. This church has a proud tradition, a rich history of going global and reaching the nations for Christ. Jackie and I came out of that. Some of the dearest people in the world are sitting in this room right now. As far as I'm concerned. They came to see John get dedicated. They came to hear me preach, and I appreciate the support. 
Our exposure to Russia happened because this church was faithful in sending a team to go work in Ivanova, Russia. Olga's here this morning. Sorry, I'm going to point you out. She's here. She was one of our translators in Russia. There's another person in this room that's very dear to me, and I'm going to not mention their name out of the fact that I didn't ask for permission first, and I don't know how they'd feel about it. But you know what? They're the reason I went to Russia. And when I hear that person say things like, I'm not sure who wants me. I'm not sure where I belong. I'm not sure that I do belong. I answer back in the loudest, firmest voice I can muster. I wanted you. God wanted you. He still does. You see, Jack and I come out of missions trips, short-term missions trips. And then there was the team we sent to Macedonia. And then there was the Baja team. But I'd love to challenge us to do more. Let's get back to being a multi-opportunity, multicultural, multi-focused church. And let's advance his kingdom to the nations because you know what? As we proclaim it to the nations, we will be a light to our community here. We will advance the gospel here. We will see lives changed here in this church as a result of good preaching and faithful teaching and people who love to just love on people. I want to close with this. Because of the rich history of this church, of going to multiple places in the world, giving people multiple opportunities to experience God, every one of those people who's gone on a short-term missions trip that I've talked to, and there are several in this room, they went on that trip to serve Jesus, but they will tell you that they were challenged in that trip. And they were challenged on every trip. It may not have been the same challenge because God usually doesn't do that, but he provides new challenges. And you know what? Out of those challenges, they changed. First time I ever went to Russia, I had a gentleman come up to me from this church and say, you know what? Russia will change you. You've got no choice but the degree to which it changes you is the degree to which you are open to the experiences you are about to have. When we're challenged, we have to change. And when we change, we get to see God's blessing. And every one of those folks that I've talked to says how amazed they are by the fact that they've seen God work in ways they never saw him work before. They're overwhelmed by the way they experience God in a way they never have before. And they're utterly just undone by how the poorest people in this world feel so rich and and blessed because they have Jesus. That cosmic, multi-ethnic worship service will happen. It's going to happen. And we who have accepted Christ will be there. 
But how much sweeter to know we're there and we did our part. How much sweeter to know we're there and others are there because we were faithful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we want to acknowledge that you don't need us. You don't need me on the missions field. You don't need our coworkers on the field. You could accomplish your great purpose any way you choose. And yet you choose us. You want us, you desire us to not only be in a relationship with you, but then to serve you and to be your representative and your ambassador to the world, to the nations, to the people, to the tribes, to the tongues of every place that there is dry earth on this land, in this world. And Father, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what you do every time by opening a door, by calling a new missionary, by sending somebody on a short-term trip they didn't know they could do. Father, we want to be God-honoring, God-loving, Christ-centered people. And I pray that you would continue to grow us in that vein so we become more like Christ in reaching the nations. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.